Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. For more information on Project MedTech, our events we host, our consulting and advisory services, and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, and follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcasts by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview style podcast focused on demystifying raising and investing capital for MedTech companies. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by McDonald Hopkins. Building MedTech companies the right way based on great technology is not a one size fits all endeavor. McDonald Hopkins provides customized and proactive strategies that align clients' valuable medtech technology with their business goals. This, in turn, builds those clients into successful, thriving companies. With strong experience and depth in the startup, venture capital, intellectual property, and fundraising arenas, McDonald Hopkins can be an important part of your team to help you develop the medtech business that you envision. If you are a MedTech enthusiast, do not forget to sign up for Project MedTech's Startup Symposium in Houston, Texas, October 25th and 26th. We'll be hearing from venture capital, regulatory, quality, angel groups, corporate venture, startup entrepreneurs. We'll be hearing from clinical, human factors, and a whole lot more. So don't forget to check that out. More information on our website. And if you want to attend, use the code PM. 20 for 20% off your ticket. In this episode, Devin Campbell at Product and I discuss the due diligence process, what you need to be prepared for to answer as a startup company, common errors, recommendations, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Devin Campbell. Devin, it's just you and I this time. Um, so for those those are tuning in, this is the third of our three-part series, um, third of our second three-part series. Um, That's right. Uh, yeah. So this is this is Devin's uh, sixth time being on Project MedTech. He's got a stranglehold on the top guest spot at this point. Um, so 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 Devin. Um, uh, Let's summarize what we're doing in this in this three part series. Just maybe talk high level, you know, sure. first two episodes, and then what this third episode is. Sure, and, and we kind of created this conversation arc, you know, mm-hmm. and, and laid them out in the way that we did it on purpose, right? Um, in in planning ahead of time. So big picture, like what are we trying to do here? I think it's reasonable f- and authentic for us to just acknowledge uh, that for. Um, <clears throat> You know, the earlier entrepreneur, the early stage med tech, uh, biotech, medical device companies, you know, fundraising out there right now is it's always hard. You know, our segment of the industry is 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 hard um, to get to get investment, to be able to fuel our product development engines. Um, so it's always hard. We, do, we need to acknowledge that. It's been particularly hard, let's say, like the last year or so. Right. Um, 
observations and trends that I see with with my involvement, and we'll kind of get into that over, over the course of this discussion, um, in that fundraising side of the world, you know, we see a lot of doubling down by investors, um, regardless of what kind of investor investor type they are, um, rather than necessarily putting new money into new things, right? Um, that's not to say though that it's it's hopeless. If you're a, a you know and if you are sitting there listening to this and imagining in your head, can I start my own medical device company, or is what I'm doing foolish? Right? Is this is this baloney, or am I kidding myself? And I don't want people to feel hopeless. I want them to feel excited and and understand. You know, keep plugging away. There are glimmers of hope. I see, and we talked before this, we started recording, you see it as well, you know, the, it is getting better, right? The fundraising market is, is improving. It got really tight for a little while there. Um, but there are signs that it's getting better. So what are we talking about in this three-part series? The whole thing has been when that money does come knocking on the door, when you do have the opportunity to invite someone and, and say, yeah, Come take a look at things. Like, let me help. Let me impress you. The idea here is that we try to help the early stage entrepreneur understand what kinds of things would we be looking at as sophisticated teams that come in and help due diligence on startups, whether they're early stage startups or late stage startups or, you know, anywhere in that product development uh, ecosystem. What kind of things do we look for? So we can help you have the best shot of showing your best self um, to the diligence team when they come. I think that's um, I think that's great. That's a great overview. Um, so so in this episode, we're we're gonna dive into hey. Devin, if you were coming in and doing the due mm -hmm. diligence on behalf of an investor, mm -hmm. where are you trying to poke holes at, right? That's what we're going to get to. First, though, we should set the stage with, with different kinds of investors. Now, we have 127 episodes as of right now on, on MedTech Money that, you know, depending on, on either one of these types of investors, you can get more technical information than you're going to get on this podcast, right? But but at a high level, you have angels and family offices or high net worth individuals. You have strategic or corporate venture, whether that come in the form of like a, a Johnson & Johnson Venture Group, Medtronic, Intuitive Surgical, Olympus, a lot of the Philips Ventures, a lot of the big companies have them. Or the flip side of that is also hospital venture groups like Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, University Hospitals, right? Different groups there. Uh, and then you have venture capital. Um, all three of these, while similar, are motivated differently. And I think that's what we kind of want to talk about here is, is um, maybe, you know, how these different groups behave. And I'm going to kick it to Devin in a second to, to touch on this. The one part I did want to add in terms of the fundraising environment, something we saw over time, was the later stage companies really got hit first from from the difficult um, um, fundraising environment. Then it was those middle companies, Series B, Series A, and 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 you know then it was seed and pre-seed you know those are going to get latest it kind of trickles down that way and and for us what we found was 
we're not even quite sure pre-seed and seed stage companies even got hit yet um, from what we were seeing, right? I mean, eventually they, they could potentially, and maybe it did happen more broadly, but from the companies we were working with, you know, based on who you're fundraising from at a pre-seed seed level, they're pretty unaffected by by the investment market, at least from what we saw. But um, anyways, Devin, to you for this, Angels Family Office is one group, Strategics or Corporate Venture in one, VCs in the other. Kind of talk to me a little bit about, you know, high level, again, the differences, what motivates them and, and that sort of thing. Sure. And, and let's, re- let's keep in mind why we want to talk about those, the differences between those three. You know, through the rest of the conversation, you know, we'll talk a lot about like, what do you do to put on your, to help show off your best self, right? And in doing that, understanding the mindset of the folks looking at you will help you do a better job um, in, in preparing your material and managing the conversations and having the conversation and having like the totality of the experience with them. It's no different than if, if you know, an, an FDA auditor is coming to visit, right? You understand your audience very precisely there. And you should know what they're in there for, right? If there's reason for alarm and they're, they're there for a very specific reason, or if it's just like, hey, we haven't checked in, we, we need to check in, look on these different things. Or maybe you, if you've had warnings or you've had any issues in the past, you know they're going to dive really deep in there, right? So you prepare the experience based on who you know you're talking to to make sure that you resonate most soundly with them. So I think it's important that we kind of look at the differences between the three and there's no, no one of those three is good or bad. Um, there's no like, Oh, I'm at this stage. So I need to do angel or I'm at this stage. So I should never consider a strategic. Um, but let's dive a little bit into it and then we'll kind of go into you know, help people think about the different aspects of it. So for angels, I think it's important to, to look at them and understand if you're going to be taking angel investment money, they're going to be some of your very earliest angels, right? Angels, family offices, people like that. Um, they, unlike strategics and unlike VCs, they can, in most cases, take their time to invest, right? They, they can take their time to do the diligence. It might take a lot longer. You might think, oh my God, why am I going through all of this work, you know, with you know these angel investors for really small check sizes, when you know I, I don't go through any of that when I'm ta- when I talk to like a larger VC that came through, right? They can take their time, right? They they don't have a time window where I have to invest this money, um, or I have a business priority that I have to hit. So that's VC and then strategic in that order. Um, they can take their time, so they might take a really really long term view on your work as well. So when they get in, they're like, hey, you know, I don't want to be dumb money. I want to sit here and add value where I can. Um, I would caution people to avoid dumb money in some cases because it does create, maybe that's a bad term, but. Well, um, we, no, we, we call it bad money. We call it, there we, we, go. have, we have there good we go. money, neutral money, bad money. Yep. Well, and then we could say like, there's good money, but it's maybe dumb money. Like the, the in, where you're getting the source, don't really understand your market or mm-hmm. you know what you're trying to do maybe they're just super enthusiastic about the passion of the ceo and so they're really investing there yeah. in, they're investing in the idea they're investing with their heart but they really have n- no value to add 
um, you know, that can be a challenge later. Um, angels can be particularly sensitive to dilution, right? right? So you have to think through like later in, later in life, uh, as your company grows, um, if you have an angel or two on your board that were early investors, early adopters, uh, you know, supporters of your technology, they're going to be a bit more sensitive to their dilution because, you know, they want a bigger return on their smaller check. Um, as opposed to like VCs have, have a slightly different perspective there. So the VCs, on the other hand, you know, those are professional investors. Angels might also be professional investors. I'm not saying that an angel is not a professional investor. There's lots of really good angels. Um, but a VC, they are groups of professional investors. They bring business experience. They bring um, strong networks. They have a lot of cash generally to be able to put into projects and they have been entrusted with cash to be able to invest and do things and there is an expectation of a return on investment of particularly high numbers within particularly short windows it's not necessarily the i can wait three four five six seven years that an angel might be fine with because you know they're investing and they think yeah i'm in it for a long haul let's see if this goes somewhere so we have to be a little bit careful with the VC when we're putting the money in there. So when we're talking to them about things like our product development strategy and our go-to-market strategy, which we're going to talk about later in this episode, you can imagine like the difference right there between an angel and a VC. The angel might be like, yeah, let's figure it out. Let's kind of, let's work through it little bit by little bit. So they, if they're looking at you, they might be okay with more ambiguity. Whereas a VC who hires me to come in and do the deep technical diligence on your team to, they want to know, do you have a realistic plan? Do you have a realistic team to pull it off, right? What what do you have in place and, and how quickly can it be done, right? You say it's going to be done in 18 months or in two years. How realistic is that? Because if we're going to plan that into when we expect those returns to come back. Um, they can be very aggressive on valuation too, which um, has an impact on how you present yourself um, with the team and the information that you share with them. Um, and they will often take a very active role um, on your board and help you grow the team, especially a larger check is going, the largest checks are for sure going to accept, expect a seat on the board to be able to help, to be able to help ensure that the investment that they've made has a better chance of returning on investment rather than just like, you know, throwing 10 million at you and then turning the back and saying, okay. Let us know when it happens. Mm -hmm. Like that's not going to happen, right? That's not a professional investor. Um, they're deeply involved. They get people like me deeply involved to like help you, to help them have a sense of confidence that you are executing the plan that they bought into originally and that you're dealing with issues as they, as they rise. Um, do you have anything you want to add on angel or VC before we touch on strategic? Cause it's no. a very different beast. No, okay. no. So I, I think, you know, again, I don't want to get too far into the details. There's a ton If you're, if you're looking, we're doing it's this at a high level, right? So I'm sure people yeah, are listening yeah. going, well, wait a minute. That's not, we have a whole 127 episodes on this. So go check go out. Listen, listen to all those. <laughs> yeah, right, okay. right. All right. Keep going. So on the strategic side, when, a, when a diligence team is coming in from a strategic and they're looking at things, um, it's important to keep in mind, if you're going to take their money, there's always strings attached, right? I mean, there's always strings attached to any money you take from anyone for any reason. But 
when you're when you're a med tech company and you're talking to a potential when you're talking to a strategic and you're thinking oh they would be a potential acquirer that's usually the you know the fantasy that people are telling themselves in their head um that might be there might be some glimmers of reality in there but we have to remember that they're going to tie strings to you that makes them very different than a vc or than an angel right because they want something more than just return on investment in most cases they're talking to you because there's a strategic fit that you might not know into their business portfolio or into their overall business plan and they don't necessarily have to share it with you um so it's good as you're preparing all the other stuff that we're going to be talking about for the rest of the episode to keep in mind like who is it that's coming in and what is their motivation is it the i'm investing with my heart and i have a long-term view uh, that the angels have? Is it the VC that's going to come in and want to do a lot of command and control and expect a pretty fast and high return on investment versus a strategic, which might want those things, but also has something else. And we have to think about what information you share and how you package the information you share with those folks. Good? Yep. Good. Okay. So, so um, diving into due diligence, right? I mean, yeah. it's hard enough as it is to get into and have an initial discussion with an investment group. I mean, whether it be angels, whether it be strategics, VCs, it's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of people out there fighting for their attention, right? And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, when we talk about this with, with startups, you know, it's like, you better have your house in order so that when someone says, hey, I want to learn more, you're not going, oh, well, wait a minute. Let me get my data room set up. Let me get this set up. Let me do this. I mean, it's a good point. Yeah. yeah you got to have these things ready to go. And so, you know, Devin, from your side, you're, you're being brought in to go through technical diligence. Let's talk about the three big areas that, that, or groups of areas, I guess, that, sure. that you're kind of, you're starting with. And so the first one of these is, is going to be lack of a clear go-to-market strategy. I want you to expand on that um, uh, a little bit more. Obviously, regulatory and IP are a big chunk of that, and that's why we covered those in separate episodes, so 151 and 152. But uh, right. go ahead and kick this off a little bit. So if I was to put them in really big giant buckets. The first bucket is, and you said go to market strategy. Yeah. Let's just take even a little bit step back and just say, do you have a plan? Right? So that's the first thing I'm going to look at is like, really, do you have a, a real plan that is grounded in reality, not fantasy? Um, so the first one is, is plan and we'll get into some aspects of plan. The next one is, do you have the team? or the resources to pull off that plan. And then the third thing that I, I, I spend most of my time digging into is, okay, let's say you have a good plan and you have a good, you, you have the right team to be able to pull off that plan. All of that is built on some foundational data set that you've shared with the VC or with the investor to get them interested enough to the point where I come in. When that happens, part of my job is to call bullshit on all the data and all the information that you've shared, right? So if you've told them you're this close to launch or that your data is this good, I'm gonna dig through differently than the rest of the team will. I'm gonna dig through all of that data, all of your infrastructure to say, hey, if we invest in this team, they're nowhere near where they need to be infrastructure-wise, data-wise, whatever. They've, there's been maybe a slight misrepresentation of how mature 
different aspects of their system are. So if we do invest, we just need to know like that's an area that we need to go into. So plan, people, and then basically the infrastructure and the data. Let's yeah. go in, let's hit them in those three in that three order. <laughs> yeah, and and I love the you bringing up kind of the um um the last part where you're trying to poke holes in the data piece, and we'll dive more into that. But just a high level thought there, because I see this a lot with some of the startup companies we work with, is when they go into diligence, they're almost like offended by the level of details and questions that they're getting from from you know someone like yourself, and mm-hmm. I always remind them you should want your investor to be doing this level of diligence because that means they're vested into your project. They're writing you a chunk of money here, you know, a big check to do this. You want them vested in what they're, what you're doing and what you're believing. And when that, what that means when they're out there doing their thing, someone asks a question, they could say, Oh yeah, we have a portfolio company and they understand it. So I, I, I love that. I'm, I'm excited to get to that piece, but let's talk about um, your plan, right? So, we talk about this with startups all the time. Um, that uh, you're, you're you're pretty much judged on three things, right? Problem, team, and your solution. Um, plan. You know, at this point, by the time they get to diligence, the the VCs kind of said, "Hey, preliminarily, this is a big problem. We think it's worth solving." Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're already bought in. On they've that. already yeah. bought into that. So, so they've probably somewhat bought in the team to a certain extent, but plan, probably not yet. So, so we, let's talk about the plan here. You talked about regulatory. You, you talked about IP in a separate separate episode. Um, mm-hmm. What else is in that plan that you're kind of trying to poke holes in? So, if you don't have an honest representation of where you are and 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 understanding of where you are. And what is it going to take to be able to bring your product to market? And in almost all cases, uh, for what we're talking about, uh, you know, the cohort of the population that you and I work with, you know, you can't do that without approval, without going through regulators in some way. And um, approval or clearance or, you know, whatever version of, of your regulatory pathway is. Um, so if you don't have a clear regulatory pathway, if you don't have a clear freedom to operate an IP strategy for how you're going to protect what you do, then the next things that, you know, those are those are red flags. But let's presume you've got that pretty well baked out. The next two things I'm going to look at plan-wise is to say, what is your product development plan to get from where you are to where you need to be to launch this? And that includes risk management, that includes manufacturing and ops, all of that you know, turn the crank, grind, you know, grinding away to get the work done, not just for the product itself, but also for the company and the processes that need to support the product as you bring it close to commercialization, right? So I'll look at those plans as well and say, okay, well, let let me see your product development plan, your PDP or your design development plan. Let me see your DDP and how well baked out is it? How mature is it? really depends on how far away you think you are from when you're going to go to the FDA and how mature your product really is. Those plans can be light. I don't want to say sparse. And that was my first inclination, but they can be, they can be light Mm -hmm. as long as they acknowledge that they're light. And they say, when we get to this next phase, we're going to beef up this piece because it doesn't make sense to do that planning this close. But we understand that we need to have, you know, a manufacturing transfer plan and a blank plan and a, 
you know, all those different things, maybe it's a little too early for you. At least acknowledge that those are too early so you don't plan them out right now, but you know you're going to need to do them and this is when you're going to do it. That impresses me, right? Yeah. I know that you've had someone helping you think through, you know, people like you and me, help you think through what is it going to take to be able to get to where you need to go, right? Yeah. I, I love that comment, Devin, because I, I, I've heard it on the MedTech Money series quite a bit where investors yeah. say, we just want them to be open, honest, transparent with us. And and I think sometimes the tendency is to think you have to have all the answers and you don't. You, I, you, an investor would rather say, oh, well, look, this they know where their gaps are and that's a good thing, yeah. right? That's a um, very good thing. Yeah. 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 And so let's let's use a let's use a different word. Two words come to mind for that. Um you, you want to come across as humble, as un, you know, yep. and, and not as not as arrogant, right. right? You don't want to come across as, especially when you're talking to a VC, right? This is, oh, well, I know how to do this, right? Okay, that's great. You know how to do it, but where's the plan? Like, I, I can't trust just your experience, right? There's intricacies in those details. Like, let's see the plan. Um, but to be humble about where you are and what you know you know and what you believe you don't know, but you have plans to be able to answer those questions. That's great. It's, it's okay to be humble and to be authentic and to be real and not be, you know, pounding your chest and saying, yeah, I can do this and feeling aggressive or defensive when someone comes in like me to look at your data and look at the information and, and question your plans. Right. Yep. So, yep. Um, okay. Um, so next line of discussions is the team. Um, mm -hmm. This is a big piece. This is also, I, I, I feel like some startups uh, uh, struggle with this because they think of their team like almost as like their, their nuclear family. Like it has to be like this, oh, these are my full-time team members. And I think any, any person in med tech probably needs to, understand that um, it's actually, you know, your team is your team of consultants, right? People like me and you, that's part of your team. It's it's your advisors. It's They all play a different role in how you paint that picture. But just curious for you, what are you looking for in a team? Are you looking for people who have been there, done that? Are you looking for people who maybe are fresh to startups? Or, you know, are you looking for the people who are like, oh, I've been at Medtronic for 35 years or J&J &J for 35 years? I, I actually think you and I have talked about this in the past on one of our previous episodes in one of our first three, but just curious on your thoughts on the team and what you're looking for. Yeah, I think I, I knew where you were going to go about you know, I've been at X place for this many years because um, I have very strong opinions on that. Um, I, I had this conversation with twice this week with two different clients where we're talking about just because you have someone that's like helping you or someone on your team that has, you know, 35 years at blankety blank, big name company, right? That's great. They understand the processes of that company and how the, like the quality management systems and all the operational processes that, that company built to meet the regulations. And they know that very, very well. It doesn't necessarily, doesn't mean it, do, it won't, but it doesn't necessarily translate to that super experienced person having any clue what does it actually take to do a startup, right? It's, it's a different world completely. 
and the rules of engagement in one, rarely do they apply, you know, cut and paste to the rules of engagement of a smaller one. So when we're talking about team, if I see someone saying, oh, well, we've got, we've got Dwayne and he's been at this company and we've got Devin and he's been at, you know, this giant diagnostic company and this big pharma company. And, and I was like, great. That's wonderful that you have some big names to be able to bolster your pitch deck. What are you actually doing with them? How often do you engage? Right? Is it just their name is there, but you actually talk to them once a quarter, once a year? They were your advisor during your accelerator program, and that's it. Um, and yeah. does that person have any defendable experience working with startups and being successful in bringing startups to market? Mm-hmm. So it's team is team is important. It's a, it's, it's probably the most important thing is if you have a great plan, but you don't have a team to pull it off, no one's going to invest in you. Mm-hmm. If you have a great team to pull it off, but you have a weak plan, someone might still invest in you and then bring in someone to help you build a better plan. Right. right? So they're really, a lot of times the investment is in the problem and the people, right? Like you, like you said earlier. Um, but if you stack your deck with super experienced folks at other places, it's not necessarily a positive, Right. What I want to see is, do you have a balanced set of, of folks? I mean, you might be a startup of seven people. You can't be all things. You can't be an expert in all the areas. But are you humble enough to acknowledge that? And you have surrounded yourself with people who do know those things, who are teaching and molding and mentoring you. And they yep. have defendable experience to be able to do that for your kind of product. Yep. I mean, What do you, what do you it, want to it, add? I was just going to say, you go back to the humble piece you talked about earlier. That's it. Like reflecting on your weaknesses and understanding what you need to cover from a gap perspective. And like, it's, it's interesting because, um, I, I talk to entrepreneurs about this all the time. An entrepreneurial mindset is like, if you were to say, Dwayne, what are you not good at? I would say, well, I'm not good at finance yet right Mm -hmm. or i'm not good at operations yet but i'm going to learn how to do those things i'm going to become uh i'm going to to improve there right that that's an entrepreneurial mindset when someone's not an entrepreneur they say what are you not good at finance i'll never be good at it operations i'll never be good at it right but an entrepreneur has a tendency to say I'll get better. I, I know it's a gap right now, but I'll, I'll improve. And so like from, for myself, just, just a big slice of humble pie. When I started project MedTech, I knew finance and, uh, planning and operations were not my thing. Right. I, mm-hmm. I had the vision. I, I understood where it needed to go. I understood how to get there kind of, but I needed mm-hmm. that like this step, this step, this step, this step, this step. And so when I was looking for co-founders, I found people who were finance experts and operations experts. And, you know, I've learned a ton from just being around them. And so I, I think I just wanted to add that because your point with the humbleness is, is it, it, it's, it, it's, it's in your entire business, right? Um, yeah. So just love your, your, your thought process there with the team. <clears throat> I, I would add to that that, when one takes a very humble stance, 
you know, not just with investors, but, you know, as the leadership team, we're going a little bit off topic, but it is part of the spirit that I would pick up. Yeah. It's definitely part of the spirit that I would pick up while visiting. Right. And I don't do diligence remotely. I, I go there and I spend time with you. Yeah. Um, I have to. Um, your team will follow you better and, and like love you more right? And do more for you. Go through the mm -hmm. crucible, uh, the painful crucible that is, you know, startup life. Um, if you're humble and not arrogant about it, right? Um, so yeah, one, one warning, a slightly different uh, uh, aside there. When you say I'm, I'm not great at something yet, right? I'd say, okay, great. Well, how are you going to get better at it? Or you don't and you just hire someone, right? You, you acknowledge your weaknesses and you bring someone in. What I don't want to see are people that say, well, I've Googled it. I've been, I've been listening right. to podcasts like this one and I know how to do that now, right? We touched on this in episode 151 on, and 152 both, right? Where there's a place for doing the best you can as a startup because you have limited funds and you have limited team and, and you know, you can't go and afford to hire, you know, professional, you know, more highly paid consultants. So you can absolutely Google things, listen to podcasts, learn, talk to peers, come up with a strategy, but still acknowledge when you're talking to someone like me to say, I came up with this strategy on my own. I think it's pretty good based on what I've learned so far. But after this raise, I one of the first things I want to do is to be able to bring an expert in to like really help me make this strong, whether it's a product development strategy, whether it's your regulatory strategy, you know, all of those things. You can do some on your own, but don't feel like just Googling things and using ChatGTP is going to be strong enough for you to have a meaningful, actionable like strategy and plan that encompasses the culture of the team, the maturity of the team, mm -hmm. you know, the maturity of the product, whether you're an incubator or your own little space, whatever, there's all these things you need to consider. Um, and when you bring us a, a, a savvy diligence team in to take a look at you, we'll be able to snuff all that out. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's spot on. Um, one of the analogies, cause I, I love analogies and I like making up my own. Um, and so one of the analogies I'll use is when you're a startup, you know, you're, you're juggling a lot of balls, right? I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. Um, and you got to keep them all in the air somehow, but as you go, it's like someone replaced one of those with like a five pound medicine ball. And so you're like, oh shoot, I'm gonna struggle here a little bit to keep this one up. And then eventually someone takes that five pound one and puts a 10 pound ball in there. And you're like, oh shit, now I'm really struggling. And so it, it's, it's the plan to say, I know these balls are gonna get heavier. And eventually I'm gonna take those heavier ones and say, hey, you, you deal with this, right? You keep right. this one in the air. Um, and so I think when companies are really early, they confuse like the, the lighter ones and, and they start to think that it's going to get it, it like they can keep doing that and it's not possible right there's it's 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 eventually it gets too heavy and you got to pass it off um so so devin let's move into the um technical piece of this and the data piece of it um when sure. you say you're looking at the the data what does this include um all right yeah. so you have pitched 
you have talked to the VC or the investor several times. You have given them pitches. Those pitches undoubtedly have photos, photos, I'm using air quotes for the listeners, uh, photos of your product. Uh, You've got data that you present and that data is going to be gorgeous data, right? It's going to be really good looking data because you're trying to demonstrate to someone, hey, the thing that we're working on really does uncover the biomarker that we care about, or it really does have the improved efficacy that we care about, right? Whatever it is you're selling um, to, to, the, to the investors. So part of my job is they've taken that at face value. Let's just use charts, taking it at face value. All right, well, let's dig into that. Now, now you bring me in and I'm going to dig into that data and say, let me see the data set that created this. Where is it? Where does it live? Oh, it's on Dwayne's computer. Hmm. It's an Excel file. Dwayne, open it up. Show Devin. And then you open it up and you show me. I'm like, so that's an uncontrolled file. Like, how do I know that you didn't generate three times as much data and you just sifted out two thirds of it? Mm-hmm. And you're only showing the really good stuff. Like, show me the full data set. Oh, this is the full data set. I, I hear you. Well, we would never you know, extract data. We we would never, you know, cherry pick the information that we're sharing. Great. I don't think that you would. I believe you. You're good, honest people. But how do I know you didn't? Right? Like what other than your word? And it's no different than later on in life when you do have an approved market, do an approved product on market and the FDA comes a knocking, mm-hmm. right? They're going to want to see like, do you have the infrastructure there? So when I'm asking, do I trust the data? I'm looking at a couple of different ways. Like, can I trust it? Is it been a? Is there a way for it to be adulterated? Is it? Is there? And do you have any safeguards on how you generate your data in any way? You know, does it feed into a database and you've got some simple audit trail built into it? Um, is it in Excel and you you drop a PDF of it every time you generate something so that it's indelible and you can't go and change it? So if I was to question your data, you can say, fine, go look at that version. It's in whatever. Or even just stick it in a read-only Dropbox folder or something like that, right? Where you set the permissions that you can only add things and you can never take things out or change things. Fine. That would be great. It just needs to be some safeguard. But if it's just, oh, yeah, yeah, the, the data is in um, is in um, Michelle's PowerPoint presentation. And, and Michelle, come over here and show it to Devin. And then you open it up and you see it, like, you know, it's typed in there or whatever. That's not data, right? And, and so I can punch holes in your data pretty easily. Now, let's take it one more step further back. Yep. Even if the data is of reasonable, indelib- you know, indelibility, I don't know if I just made up that word or not, but I'm going to run with it. Do it. Um, even if the data does feel reasonably secure, I'll say, okay, can you repeat that experiment? Do you have the materials on hand right now? Like, let's go in the lab and repeat that experiment. Can you repeat it? Do you remember the protocol that you used? Is it written down anywhere? It can be in a lab notebook. That's fine. But is the protocol that you used written down somewhere so that if I, if I challenged your data and I said, baloney, prove it to me, do it again right now. 
can you follow the exact same protocol and generate the same data? Okay. So mm -hmm. we've, we've got, we, now we go one step even deeper, right? I'm, I'm showing off all my secrets. We go one step even deeper. And so we say, okay, we've got good data. We've got protocols to be able to follow. When you did that experiment, let's say, and sometimes it's old data, which is bad, right? If I'm looking at it and say, this is two years old. Mm. What have you been doing since then? Have you been able to repeat this data? Or am I looking at something that's four or five years old that, you know, or whatever, even if it's just a couple months old, but you've right. made a lot of changes to your product yet, is it still usable? But I will question, do you understand the configuration of your system when you perform that test? So even if you have a protocol and you have a great way to store all the data, what version of software were you using when you ran that test that time? Are you recording that anywhere? You know, maybe you have a script that you're running. Maybe you have some mm -hmm. basic software. Maybe your analysis software. What version of your system was it? What rev of configuration of your hardware were you using, right? Of the reagents and chemistries that you've used, maybe it's an it's a IVD and it has an assay associated with it, right? What was the formulation? Do you know what lots you used? Like just kind of the basics of what we should do as good engineers and scientists. Like we should write down what we're going to do, what we did, secure the data, and we know exactly what the configuration of everything that we used was when we did it. If I can't find those things, I'm going to come back and say, the data does look gorgeous. I'm not sure they can repeat it. Mm -hmm. And which we, we don't want, which is right. a problem. And, and we, it might be a case where they can't repeat it. It might, it might be financially, you know, not something that they can do in that moment. But you want me to walk away with a sense of confidence that if money wasn't an issue or if time wasn't an issue, I feel like they could do it. Like the data's pretty secure and they had a protocol written in, you know, Fred's notebook, but they did a pretty good job writing it up. So, you know, I looked at it and I feel like they could repeat it if they needed to. Um, mm -hmm. So, okay. All right. That's a, that's a deep dive on data. I love it. I love it. What else is in there that you're looking at? Um, so at the same time that we're looking at, we talked a little bit about like lack of transparency before, mm -hmm. yeah. right? It, are you being fully transparent? So let's talk yeah. about organization for a second, right? Okay. Because a well-organized room helps combat a lack of transparency. Okay. So when I'm looking at organization, I'm looking at like the data room, how well is it organized? Is it just one giant place? Um, where everything is just dumped in there or is it organized right. in a way that reasonably makes sense and facilitates my ability to kind of get through and find the things that I'm going to want. Similarly with pitch decks that might've been shared or might be in the data room, are they also, I'm not going to use the word meticulous. It doesn't have to be that, you know, I's dotted and T's crossed, but it needs to be pretty, it needs to demonstrate that you've thought through it and you've put some organization into your pitch into the decks and into the data room that supports it. Now, it might all be perfectly fine information that's in there, but if it's kind of, I'm gonna use the word in a more inflammatory way, if it's carelessly thrown all in, in one big group, right? And you have a couple of different pitch decks that you just kind of threw in there, and I'm like looking through this data. The impression that I'm gonna walk away with is that 
if you weren't meticulous and if you weren't careful in your thinking about how you organized your data room, are you going to be similarly, are you going to carry forward a similar lack of attention to detail with your product development, sure. with your risk management, with your operations build out? So I will see that organization and I will extrapolate it to all of the rest of the company. Right. So first impression being trans yeah first impression be really transparent but have it well be well organized because it demonstrates you think through these small details you know your pitch deck is well organized there's not typos everywhere in it but let's presume pitch deck is a good shape because you wouldn't have got the vc's attention anyway but if the data room isn't well organized if it's not stocked if you have like folders in there and they're empty i'm like why did you even put it there like why did you lead me to an empty and i see this often like why did you lead me to an empty fold Right. Whatever. So that's kind of organization. Got any questions on that one? No, that makes sense. That makes right. sense. So so we've kind of covered data, transparency, organization. Let's, let's talk about we talk about the maturity of the team. Okay. Right. We talked about that early, right? Yep. Um, but let's talk about the maturity of the product and the maturity of the infrastructure of your company. Okay. All right. So those are things that I want to make sure when I'm coming in, which is part of the reason why I come into the, to the facility. Um, I want to touch it. I want to feel it. I want to see it. I want to be in the lab space. I want to be in your man, whatever your manufacturing area is. If you're using a, a CDO already, I might want to go visit this, you know, a CMO. I might want to go visit the CMO. If your product that you showed really cool, here comes the air quotes again, pictures on your website. And you say, yeah, we are already through engineering verification. We've done system verification and validation, and we're ready to do transfer to manufacturing. This happens. Great. You're ready to, do transfer, ready, ready to go transfer into manufacturing. That's the story you've sold to the VCs. I will walk in and I will bring with me screwdrivers. I will bring with me, you know, Torx drivers. I, I will bring in the tools with me and I'll say, let me see your product. Cool. Here it is. This is the one we showed the VC. I will take it apart. Right? Like, let's look on the inside. Mm -hmm. As a design engineer, I can do a pretty good job of taking a look at the inside and saying, this is not ready for transfer to manufacturing. Mm -hmm. You've got 3D printed parts all over the place in it. There's cuts and jumps on the boards. You've got, you know, you know, you know, glorified versions of like baling wire and, and, you know, chewing gum, holding the system together on the inside. Yeah. That is not ready for manufacturing. There's no design for manufacturing built into it yet. It might work. It might work beautifully, but we're all fooling ourselves if we think this thing is ready for high volume or even low volume manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to look at your product maturity. And I'm going to look deep at the product maturity. And we're also going to look at the infrastructure. So when we say that, I mean, how do you plan to manufacture this product? Right? So you've got your manufacturing plan, which we talked about earlier. If you plan on doing some of it in-house, or as we talked about on the IP discussion, you might do a little bit in-house that's around something that you're keeping as a trade secret, and you choose to do the rest of it outside. Fine but do you have the infrastructure to pull that off and to make all that work? 
And a really important one, which I see happen way too late, way too often, is do you have the quality management system infrastructure in place yet? So I'm not necessarily saying you have to have a fully 1345 compliant quality system. It really depends on the maturity of your team and of your company. But you shouldn't have none. Mm -hmm. You should have something. And you should have some quality maturation plan. If if you're really early, you should have at least a plan, right? But I want to see, do you have the basics of like a single source of truth and you can, you know, you've got document control and and change control capabilities. Um, If you don't have all that in place, that's appropriately kind of affinity match to where you say you are in your product and your company's maturity level, I'm going to be like, they're not ready, mm-hmm. right? They, they, you know, they, they don't have the quality infrastructure in place yet. They haven't done, they say they're close to the end of product development process, but they haven't even done their risk management. They haven't even built out any of their risk management file yet. How can you have done product development? without have without having risks and you have to have some processes in place for how do you think about risk yeah. it can be lightweight but something because risk needs to inform product development it's not an afterthought it's not a box you check when you're done and say okay i did my risk analysis now mm-hmm. so when i'm talking about company infrastructure i'm talking about those sorts of things right do you have the processes in place but and especially do you have the quality management system yeah. infrastructure in place uh- I love it. It's a it's a it's a great um, one to end on here, Devin. Um, I, I really appreciate all your time you've donated. You donated, you know, three hours at this point plus our pre conversations, and um, it's super helpful information to share. Um, I appreciate you hopping back on and, and doing another three part series. I'm sure we'll do another one in the future. Um, hopefully we'll be getting Devin out, um, to a few of our events we have coming up as well. So you have a chance to meet him there as always link to the, to his LinkedIn uh, products website, uh, which is newly designed and done. Um, we'll be in the show notes. Um, Devin, thanks so much for doing this again. Hang on for one minute and we'll chat offline. All right. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.